Hello and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Ashley Jones. So Ashley has worked in professional sport for the last 30 years, specifically in rugby where he's worked with teams from club to international level, going to two Rugby World Cups for both a Southern and a Northern Hemisphere team. He was also awarded the 2015 Professional Coach of the Year by the NSCA, which makes him the perfect guest today to discuss how rugby has changed in the last 30 years and where it's going in the future. So without further ado, it's time to welcome Ashley onto the show. So Ashley Jones, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much, Matt. It's, uh, it's great to be here. I've uh, watched uh, all the uh, work that you guys have been doing at uh, Science for Sport and uh, listening to the podcast, so it's a, a great honour to be included in uh, the uh, group that you've already had on over the over the years. Oh, fantastic! It's great to hear that people uh, don't just ignore what we're doing, so uh, that's always a positive. Um, and uh, also fantastic, of course, to get people who listen uh, and consume the content onto the podcast. So, before we dive into all things rugby and how that's changed in the last few years, can you give us a, a bit of background as to who you are and what you've been up to? Yes, uh, I, I'm probably going to steal from um, one of my great mentors, Lynn Jones, in the way he introduces himself a couple of times. And uh, I'm uh, Australian by birth, and I'm uh, Celtic, British, and Scandinavian by ancestry, and I call Christchurch, New Zealand, my current home. And I've been a strength and conditioning coach and worked in professional sport for just over 30 years now, so half my life. And uh, having started in the fitness industry uh, back in 1979 as a 17-year-old uh, a out of school and uh, where I cut my teeth working in a gym and uh, basically um, haven't strayed too far away from that over the last 40-odd um, uh, years. <laughs> it sounds simple when you put it like that. Um, so in terms of then uh, your career in elite sport, where where is that taking you? Because obviously... Um, it's not just been uh, it's not just been in the gym. So, what, where's that taking you in terms of uh, professional organisations? Where in the world? What, what have you been up to there? I started in uh, professional basketball and uh, in Sydney in Sydney, Australia, in 1992. And from there, I moved into rugby league, uh, working in the National Rugby League in Australia. And uh, eventually, uh, that uh, uh, moved across into rugby, which is the sport I played predominantly growing up as a kid. And um, I still find myself uh, in and around the rugby circles, uh, probably, what was that, uh, 2003 was my first professional gig in rugby union. And uh, now back in 2022, I find myself uh, currently in between positions, but uh, actively looking to where I go next. Absolutely excellent. So, uh, yeah, I can imagine if some people, some people are listening and think, oh, I've got a job for you, then uh, absolutely spot on and uh, good timing in terms of getting you on the podcast. Um, Very good and- and in, ter- in terms of how rugby has developed over the years, because obviously you've seen you've seen a lot of different um, coaches, you've seen a lot of different things going on throughout the years. Like how how has that changed from the moment when you stepped into rugby through till now in terms of the the strength and conditioning and sports science scene? I think the strength and conditioning side, you'd be surprised how little it has changed. Um, if I can start with that area, um, although I think. Obviously, titles and job descriptions and things like that have moved on. I remember when my first uh, conditioning job was with the Warringah Rugby Club, which is the club I played when I was growing up as a kid. 
And this was this was a, a local club in the Sydney club competition, so it wasn't professional. But um, I, I just hark back to those days because um, a lot of the gyms um, were commercial gyms or a lot of surf clubs in uh, the local areas. I grew up on the northern beaches of Sydney, and um, nearly every surf club had a, a small gym, and a, a lot of the rugby players uh, were in the surf clubs in the uh, off-season, and kept their fitness through uh, surf boat rowing and uh, other activities uh, associated with uh, their life-saving duties on, on the beach. And uh, But obviously that's moved. And even my first professional job in rugby league, we had to work out of a commercial gym. So to, uh, to fast forward into this era now where most facilities have state-of-the-art uh, performance centres, uh, more so than just gyms, but... Um, I, I go back to, again, the Ringer story in that my first night um, there was a the head coach, he said, uh, you're the new conditioner, are you? And he, I said, yep. He said, well, take the first and second grade out and um, give them a run. So um, I'd come straight out of uh, teacher's college at that stage, so I didn't know a hell of a lot about what I was doing, but uh, tried to cobble some session together. And we did a bit of a, bit of a fartlek session with some uh, uh, exercises periodically and I went out for about 40 minutes and I brought them back and the um, the head coach said what are you doing back and I said well it's the first run for the season I, I know these guys haven't done a lot so uh, I thought we'd just do a, um, a 40 minute run and uh, we'll get it on for the next session I said no nah, take them out again uh, <laughs> flog them <laughs> and uh, that was the the culture of uh, that environment and um I just put a little story about surfboat rowers in there because uh, the head coach was a surfboat captain, and um, the, so the story goes that uh, if you want to pick people for a particular sport, you actually line them up against a, a, a wall, and uh, you grab a half a house brick and you throw it directly at the uh, athlete standing against the wall. The ones who duck and sh- uh, move away from it, you eliminate straight away. The ones that actually just stand there and allow the house brick to hit them, they actually become still water rowers. And the ones that actually lean forward and headbutt the brick on the way in, they actually become surfboat rowers. So that's the sort of mentality <laughs> we're dealing with when you come to head coaches who happen to be surfboat captains as well. So um, hence why I didn't very didn't last very long at that organisation. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like a tricky place to, to be, especially if that coach is not going to change. Um, uh, and no, is, no, is, it was all a heart and up mentality, basically. Uh, and like there's a time and a place for it but um yeah if that's going to be every session then it's not going to make your life any better i don't think um how how has that changed and developed over the years because obviously we're we're laughing about that now it might still happen in some places but um how has that then developed over over your time in sport i think the the education of the coaches uh that uh has been quite parallel by the education improvements in the strength and conditioning coaches as well and, but also parallel with the education of the playing group as well. I think uh, when I first started out, I would have, I would have thought that was uh, very few players had a, a, a good understanding. There might have been a couple of physical education teachers who had a little bit of an idea, but uh, most of the players basically um, just did what you asked them to do or resisted a wee bit, and uh, you had to work fairly hard on some people. But, for example, when I was working in Edinburgh, um, I had two uh, players that were actually currently then doing their master's degree in strength and conditioning. So you can actually talk to the players uh, about some fairly complex topics about what you're trying to do and and actually get a a pretty good understanding. And the education across the board has has lifted the 
uh, the industry into more of a profession, I would say, over the last 30 years. And is, is it um, often the case that athletes will be super clued up on this kind of stuff? Because obviously yeah, in, in my work, I see a lot of athletes becoming physiotherapists, for example. Um, so people who are intelligent people who are going into similar fields, um, do, do you think that there's a, a shift towards athletes needing to be that kind of uh, engaged, clever athlete? Or is it still a little bit, okay, well, just, just pick the, the ones who are really into it? I think there's a little bit of that for sure because um, I think it it makes life a lot easier when you're explaining topics and, and working through areas. And I think um, I remember listening to Brian Mann speak a couple of years ago and, and he was saying that when he was at, I think it was at the University of Missouri, and uh, he was talking about uh, a, a session that he had and he was explaining the ins and outs of the, the different velocities for different types of strength to be developed. And he thought a lot of it was going over their heads. And then he, he remembered one of the players came up to him about six or eight weeks later and, and said, um, are we shifting from um, strength speed into speed strength, hence our, our increase in velocity, so that we're actually um, trying to train that variable a lot better than uh, slower speed? And he said he almost fell down because of the <laughs> – the fact that he thought none of these guys were actually picking up on it, but um, the clued-in ones were, and and I guess that influences the rest of the group as well because I think the the biggest thing I've found is there's a lot more um, of the why question coming through from the playing group. Probably 30 years ago, no one asked why we're doing actually what we're doing, but uh, now there's a lot more, well, why are we doing this? Or And then I, I actively encourage that because... I think as a strength and conditioning coach, if you can't explain the why of the program, then why you've actually got that in the first place. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Like you need to have uh, some kind of rationale for it. And I think you can you can definitely see a, a clued up generation coming through where they're seeing a lot of stuff on social media, for example, and they're like, oh, can we try this? Or why, why would we do, I don't know, bench press instead of this variation? And... You're kind of like, okay, well, that's an interesting point because, yeah, A, B, and C, um, that's why we're doing it. And you don't want to just say all the stuff on social media is crap because it's not. But, yeah, um, yeah sometimes you do need to have that conversation. Obviously, you need a good reason for what we are doing. Um, but when you when you say um, like sport performance and the things that have changed, what do you think is then the, the biggest game changer in the last 30 years in terms of sport performance? What's one thing that you think, you know what, like that, that has elevated performance so significantly that we really can't miss it that's i was looking at some of the questions you sent through to me and i think this has been a really tough area for me to have a look at because i'm, I'm definitely not the most technological coach uh, that you you'll have on your show by any strength uh, stretch of the imagination but i i think obviously uh the advent of gps and and uh the amount of time and effort that goes into analysis of GPS has, has been a significant shift um, in training programs. And some would say for the better, some would say for the worse. Um, I, I am on the fence still. I think uh, a lot of teams I conditioned before the advent of GPS, I thought were, were better conditioned. Um, and I guess some of the those why questions are coming, well, why are we doing this? And um, 
why are we going above 10% of uh, high speed running in this particular session? And so there is, so there is pluses and minuses in that uh, increased education. But um, I think uh, from straight up, I think the uh, time we put into uh, monitoring, I think has been a game changer for sure in the fact that uh, player welfare and ensuring that uh, uh, players are actually good to go. But then the conversations that that actually engenders after the initial testing, I think, is where the, the more important work is done. Obviously, we'll, you might have a, a battery of five tests that you do a couple of days a week before the start of training. There might be a, a knee to wall, a groin squeeze, a vertical jump, uh, sit and reach, or, or whatever your particular protocols are for, the, for your particular group. But it's then if you've got, say, a couple of red flags popping up, you might say, well, um, how are you? What have you been doing? Um, and then you get to, to the deeper level. You peel off one of the onion skins and suddenly you've got three, four, five more onion skins to, before you actually get what's actually going on. And I think that builds a, a deeper understanding of for the coach with the athlete and the athlete with the coach. And I think that's the sort of... Um, conversations that develop the compliance into the program and a much better relationship between the two groups rather than having them on either side of the uh, the bench, so to speak. They all come together and, and come in together into, into the area of uh, performance. And how, how much buy-in do you think then is, is needed for these practitioners? So let's say you're a, a pure sports scientist and you're only using data all the time and all of a sudden you see this uh, red flag and you go and ask the player about it so how how much buy-in does that person need and do they have it like, is there enough buy-in for that for that person where they can go you know what I, I, I can question that person I can get to those deeper layers or do they need to give that on sometimes to a different staff member who can then uh, use the relationship with the athlete better yeah, I think I, I remember a story that a couple of years ago that I heard from uh, when uh, the Dublin Football Club, uh, Galley Football Club in um, in Ireland, were introducing GPS, and and they had a sports scientist that with them that didn't know anything about the game or the playing group. They basically just crunched numbers, and uh, he was sitting on the sideline with the head coach, and he said, "You need to get number seventeen off." I won't even bother to try with the accent. But you need to get number 17 off and he needs to come off now. And the coach said, um, why? He said, uh, well, he's, had, uh, he's only had five possessions over the last uh, 30 minutes. And uh, the head coach said, well, his name, I can't remember his name, but I'll say it's, it's, it's Fergus O'Reilly. Um, his name's Fergus O'Reilly and, and please refer to him as Fergus uh, rather than just number 17. And then he said, and do you know what he's been doing in those five possessions? He scored three goals too, and he's the reason why we're actually leading this game. So um, <laughs> uh, you can just move off into the back stand and, and give me the data at the end of the game. So I think it's how you approach the situation. And some people um, tend not to have those, I'll say, softer people skills, if you like, rather than... Um, uh, as pure sports science skills, and sometimes maybe it has to be a different person that actually delivers the message or or um, works your way through that particular uh, conversation. It's and some of those conversations are tough. I mean, I, I uh, was chatting to a 
uh, a female rugby player today and, and she was telling me that sometimes she doesn't even get told why she hasn't been selected, even at, at this stage in 2022. And uh, because pe- some people just don't like having cu- tough conversations. <laughs> I can I can imagine, especially if you're um, a starting player, you get unselected. I think that's a pretty tough one. Obviously, I can imagine for head coaches that they have to tell 11 players every week that they're not playing and why that could be a, a little bit tiresome. But um, it's, a, it's a really interesting insight. And I wanted to tap into to some of that experience that you've had as well. And looking back over the last... 30 years obviously there's been some elements of sport performance that have really stood the test of time so what what do you think of those elements which they were performed 30 years ago and they're still getting performed now and they just work i think um one of my head coaches greg cooper who i worked with at Stade francais for um for an off season in 2017 he has a saying that he said when the legs go performance goes and you need to put some work into uh, building that engine. And uh, I think with the uh, the use more of, say, um, MAS grids and things like that, where obviously back in the 1980s, the 1990s, it was all road runs and and very uh, little, little more than that, really. Um, and a lot of players were actually doing garbage truck runs to actually maintain their fitness during their off-season. So it was all about the running and... and Nowadays, obviously, we're a little bit more clued in uh, and the use of uh, small-sided games and uh, getting a skill elements involved from an early start as well. But uh, I think also that the basics in the gym, uh, when it really comes down to it, it's, it's really just a, a, um, a squat, a hinge, an upper body push, an upper body pull, and attention to uh, individual weaknesses after that. So I think they're the ones that have stood the test of time. and. Uh, I think I'll always include a, a fairly heavy aerobic running block in, in all my preparation work, and I think that's um, that's been a key of a lot of the programs that I've worked in over the years. And, and what does that block look like then for you? How does uh, how do you start to to build that up throughout that preseason phase? And um, I, I I look at the GPS for the previous year and, and look at what a an average uh, week would look like as far as um, total meters, high-speed running meters, uh, number of sprints, change of directions and, and those metrics. And then I would probably start at about probably 50 to 60% of that. I'd, obviously, there's a, an expectation that uh, uh, players now will maintain uh, their level of fitness from the, from the previous season or allow it to drop by only a small percentage, whereas years gone by, and, and probably this was, the, this was the biggest thing that happened 20, 30 years ago, was the fact that you spent the first probably four to six weeks of your preseason getting players back to where they were at the end of the previous season. So you were you're always basically one step forward, two steps back sort of thing. Whereas now players uh, actually hit the ground fairly much running when they come to you in the in the first couple of weeks of the preseason. So you can actually get some quality work done from the get go. So I would I would still probably have quite a few of the VO2 grids uh, organised. Um, I I'm a little bit old school, so I still like to do a 2.4-kilometre time trial for a lot of my uh, testing when I when I start back. And my rationale behind that is that even if they've done basically nothing, they can still walk or run 2.4 kilometres. And I usually do it on a track if I can, uh, and usually a grass track if I can as well. And 
there's no change of direction. So with your um, with your yo-yo test, with your your old beep test, with your more your bronco tests, there's that change of direction every 20, 40, 60 metres involved in whichever test you're doing. And I think that because players are deconditioned to change a direction and turning, that that particular test can place a, a significant stress on, on the hip structure and, and may um, injure a few players or, or may uh, bring people up quite sore over the next couple of days. So hence why I use a 2.4-kilometre time trial. Um, and then I'll integrate those other tests in the first few weeks after we've done a little bit of uh, preliminary um, running mechanics, uh, change of direction mechanics, and uh, obviously uh, eccentric strengthening in the weight room. Absolutely fantastic. And that's a really interesting insight. And before we wrap up, I want to I want to touch on what you think the future brings. So obviously, with with a fantastic look into the past, we've we've covered loads of different stuff which which has um, really worked and uh, and developed over the years. But what do you then think the future will bring to the the rugby performance world? I think the 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 rule changes in the game will dictate where we go. And uh, I remember seeing in rugby league, uh, my last season in the NRL was the last, it was the year 2000, and it was the last season where we had unlimited interchange uh, in rugby league. And I remember the the team I was with at that stage, we averaged 47 substitutions a game in, in that particular season. So... We didn't have to condition the players for any really aerobic conditioning whatsoever. We basically were all about speed and power. And uh, we basically, we allowed the matches to condition the players specifically over the course of the season. Uh, but with the rule change, obviously, it became a lot more aerobic. And you saw the, saw the size of rugby league players change significantly from the, the 2000 and, and earlier to what we have now where it's it's quite rare to have some of those uh, those monsters still playing the game. Um, in rugby, I arrived in rugby in, in 2003 uh, here in Christchurch and the technical rules of the breakdown were such that it almost became like a rugby league game, if you can remember back in those days, because it, it the phases didn't seem to go very long at all before you actually had um, a penalty or a, a, another scrum or whatever. So... The aerobic elements weren't that great back in those days, even though we trained fairly heavily for the aerobic side. You could get by with with not being that aerobically conditioned, and obviously that's changed now, and the aerobic condition of the players is, is phenomenal in rugby. So I think rule changes will dictate uh, where we head, but I'm actually excited about some of the um, the wearables coming through, um, the, the use of the mouth guard for... Uh, for data collection and particularly for uh, head injury, observation and collection is, is ex- going to be extremely important moving forward. And um, any methodology where we can actually uh, impact on the safety of the individual player and improve their ability to play the game at the highest level and minimise the risk of injury will be a, a key element moving forward. I think that's a, a really interesting one. We, we actually did a podcast on that as well. So I'll, I'll link that one in the show notes if anyone wants to, to have a further listen. But that's uh, certainly some interesting developments in terms of technology. Um, what do you think in terms of the, the people? Do you think that there, there's a certain skill set which people will need in the future to, to ensure that they can work at the top level? I think 
With uh, strength and condition particularly, I mean, Brett Bartholomew obviously is doing a fantastic job as of uh, getting back to what is important, which is the person in the first place. And I think we've, we've tended, I think, a wee bit to go away from the element that the player is is the product that we're actually helping to develop and, and they want to be the best they possibly can be. But we need to take what they have, bring to the table and consider what their experiences as well. And, and I'll include them into uh, as one of the key stakeholders in, in the development of a program each and every season that I'm involved in, in the sport so that I'm not only talking to the, to the coaching group as far as uh, how they feel they want to play the game in, in, with the group of players that we have, the medical staff and looking at the uh, constraints on certain individuals and what we can and cannot do with those. But the playing group themselves is very, very important to connect with to ensure that uh, they have been in other clubs, they've been in other programs. So what they bring to the table uh, is often missed and uh, can actually add value to the overall program. And I think build great compliance into the actual program itself by, by having them as, as one of the stakeholders in the group. I think that, that feeds really nicely into that educated athlete profile, which you mentioned earlier, where it's not just the case of that um, that dictator who says, right, this is going to be how we're going to do it, and we're going to do A, B, and C, and that's going to make you better, and athletes nod and, and crack on with it, um, that you actually have that conversation and uh, yeah, and bring them into the to the fold a little bit when it comes to organizing their, their training week program and goals. Um, I think that's a really important element to start because uh, um, I consider myself, I, I did teaching as my original, uh, my first degree. And so my teaching is my profession, education is my profession, and coaching is my trade. And that's the way I've looked at it for a number of years, and, and I think the two match up not quite nicely. And, um, and I think hopefully that people will consider more so uh, looking at those, those softer skills that allow you to have those conversations that we mentioned earlier. Absolutely fantastic. So, Ashley, massive thanks for your time and effort today. I really appreciate all your hard work. Um, where can people find more about you and what you've been up to? I, I don't have much of a social media presence at all, um, but um, I am very active on the National Strength and Conditioning Association Rugby Special Interest Group, which is on Facebook. And uh, it's very easy to find. It's um, we, uh, we actually repost a lot of uh, uh, Science for Sport information on that as well. So, um, I, I guess we get a lot more uh, people interested in that from a rugby perspective as well. Uh, and also I write a column for EliteFTS.com in the United States and I've been writing that column for coming up 10 years now. And um, so people can actually go on, on that particular website and uh, find when my next article is coming out. Absolutely fantastic. So Ashley, massive thanks for your time and effort today. I really appreciate your fantastic insights and uh, I look forward to speaking again sometime soon. Appreciate you, Matt. Thank you very much for the opportunity and uh, thanks very much for viewers for listening. Thank you very much, buddy. Cheers. Cheers. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to Ashley for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it and I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of the Coach Academy. Now, the Coach Academy is a series of lectures broken down into bite-sized chunks. So if you've enjoyed today's podcast and you want to get some more great sports science information, all you have to do is hit the link in the show notes to get in the Coach Academy for seven days completely for free in just a few seconds' time. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, it would be great if you can give us a like and a share on social media and recommend us to a coach, a colleague, an athlete, or a friend. 
That means that we can keep bringing the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport, and I'll speak to you next week.